1: Oh boy, Rebecca! It is news wall to wall here at the Book Riot podcast this oh. week, 2020, which was w- saving all of its centrally <laughs> book you know news. That's not like COVID related for the end of the yeah, year. When- Interestingly, only one of these is a story related to COVID, and it's saying it's not a thing. Yeah, so, it's also interesting.
2: It's uh, it's been a couple weeks since we did news here yeah. on old podcast. So some of these links have been piling up as we yeah. were in the, you know, in the zone of custom recommendations for folks. But yeah, it's interesting how few of these are tied to the defining parts of 2020, mm-hmm. really, in terms of the rest of the news cycle.
1: Yeah, it's like cleaning up, like there's a Woodward thing we'll get to about Trump, um, the book Supply and Chain, people are worried about with COVID and demand seems to be doing okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everything else is... I don't know, kind of like book the book world going to book world uh, a little bit. So let's do a sponsor and get into it uh, here in just a second.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So, Negative Space by Gillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls at school something happens she accidentally witnesses an ambiguous possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student but how can she be sure of what she saw negative space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world it's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic focused. And it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Gillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode.
1: Got a lot I got a lot of recommendation related follow-up and we're going to do zero of it today we've got <laughs> so much news I was um, like oh
2: good I'm all sad <laughs>
1: uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes the most important feedback we got this week was about um, a new food product over in Mary old and uh, mm-hmm. the weight rose I'm not sure he's printed they probably say weight rose um, <laughs> uh, supermarket grocery store chain has an alternative tortilla shaped product <laughs> <laughs> For the holiday season, okay. it is a Christmas tree-shaped t- tortilla. Big fan. All shapes are welcome here. There's a big tent under the tortilla-shaped uh, 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 revival. But not only is it Christmas tree-shaped, it is flavored like turkey stuffing. So I don't know what to do with <laughs> Wait, my body about this.
2: Is it a tortilla or a tortilla chip?
1: It's a tortilla chip. Okay. In The shape of a Christmas tree. That tastes like turkey stuffing, apparently.
2: That's not that far off from the usual triangular shape of a tortilla chip.
1: This is all tortilla-shaped deniers. I don't know what you're talking (laughs) about. This is a a (laughs) serrated crescendo. That's way different. Oh, my God. A serrated crescendo. Show title, if that's ever a show title.
2: (laughs) I am disturbed by how available those words were to you. (laughs)
1: Look, I think about things. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what day it is, but that was ready.
2: <laughs> but by God, we've got a serrated crescendo.
1: <laughs> so I'll put a link in the show notes um, to an Instagram post. I like how now all the tortilla chip content <laughs> is coming to me.
2: Is the, uh, is the listener who sent this in going to try the turkey stuffing
1: I, I think flavored chip? W- I don't have the email in front of me, so I'm so sorry. But I think it was only a screen cap of something they saw on Instagram immediately had to forward. Listen. Rebecca your brand might be is your, strong. Rebecca might be your internet mom, but I'm your tortilla chip <laughs> uncle. Um, in in oh, the back no, of the man. days of vanity tumblers, I definitely would have had a, a, a weird tortilla chip tumbler. That definitely would have happened. It's, there's mm. no question about
2: it. Yeah, that's, it is like very much in the adjacent possible to your donut pun tumbler. Yes,
1: As I lay frying my beloved mm-hmm. donut pun tumbler, literary quotation <laughs> donut pun tumbler, actually. Nothing more immediate than that. I was
2: about to say, you know, like someday in the past, before I became the Internet's mom and you became their tortilla mm-hmm. chip uncle, I was about to be like, well, you know, we used to be cool, but I actually don't think that's ever been true.
1: We used to at least be differently grotesque versions of ourselves, <laughs> maybe.
2: 2020's been a long one, Jeff.
1: Look, you're not different. You're just more.
2: Yeah. Right? More More distilled. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a yeah.
1: reduction uh, mm-hmm. through an alembic. We've created a, a Jeff and Rebecca <laughs> sauce to pour over 2020. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, speaking oh. of the sauces to pour over 2020, the um, I don't know if it's so much a sauce as spice about Simon & Schuster being acquired, mm-hmm. agrees to be acquired by PRH. Uh, what re- look, what this really is is Viacom... Agreeing to sell one of its meaningless subsidiaries to, <laughs> to Bertelsman <laughs> uh-huh. uh, to join with one of its... Me- no, actually, Bertelsmann's, Bertelsmann, which is the parent company of PRH, a significantly larger amount of its business is comes from Penguin Random House, both because Bertelsmann is smaller and because Penguin Random House is bigger. But Viacom, just for context, they own things you might have heard of it, CBS, <laughs> movie studio, studios. And I can understand why Viacom is like, you know, we've got this legacy media business that doesn't grow great. I mean, books are in fine shape, but it doesn't help your quarterly earnings going up and to the right, which is what these publicly traded companies want to do. We can get some cash for it, and there we go. Um, I guess I... I'm not sure. I don't remember when we talked about this last, but we talked about our, you know, what we think would happen, what might happen, what we'd want to happen. If it were my druthers, I would like... Simon Schuster not to be owned by somebody else, that would be my preference. Mm -hmm. Um, Because from a reader, I don't see a lot of upside to this. I actually don't actually see a lot of downside. I think the downsides are for more industry-facing, less competition, PRH has more clout. That's where a lot of the opposition falls. I think my litmus test, we've talked about this a long time ago, my litmus test as a reader is, are there more books I want to read than I will be able to read? And the answer to that remains yes. So that part of it doesn't really matter to that you know lower uh, big apple, uh, uppercase Jeff right mm-hmm. there. But to me, as someone who does this, as a, as someone whose business is in the book world, I'm not sure what to think about it that much, Rebecca. And I think was that the tenor of our head yeah. scratching, or tell me differently how you're.
2: It's. Feeling. I agree with all of that. I think the and it's interesting. You know, like the. The piece that we're going to link to here is the announcement in the New York Times, and it's from November 25th. And we're recording this on December yeah. 10th. So it's been a few weeks since this news broke, and there has not been much follow-up about it at all, which in itself is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a follow-up piece from PW from November 30th um, with objections from the Authors Guild and a few other groups, the American Booksellers Association um, decries the move as well. But since then, there's been sort of no big news about it. And I think that's meaningful, or at least potentially meaningful. Um, My metric is kind of the same. Like, I have not noticed a difference in reading life quality or the availability of way more interesting and good books than I will ever get to in my life since Penguin and Random House merged several years ago. Like, basically nothing feels different to me as a reader um, on the day after PRH was a thing than the day before or now years later, and I'm kind of anticipating that that's how it's going to feel with Simon Mm -hmm. & Schuster as well. Um, Certainly folks in the industry will be affected probably people who work at Simon & Schuster or maybe also at the existing PRH will be affected if they do any sort of like merging or reduction of overlapping imprints or anything like that. but we don't know what that's going to look like. Um, our colleague Kelly Jensen has noted that you know this might compress the mid-list even further. And that means fewer opportunities for writers. And then, you know, subsequently all the people connected to writers, fewer opportunities for agents or fewer mm-hmm. deals that editors can make. Like it does impact employment inside the industry. But in our lives as readers, I think it might make a philosophical difference. Like if you're just bothered that there are potentially fewer books, period, because publishers merge mm-hmm. then you're then you're just going to be bothered but in terms of actually feeling the impact like in some sort of meaningful decrease in the availability of good books to read i have not felt that and i yeah, i, I, have not I think not felt that. i to. don't
1: think that either and i think um maybe i said this to you personally or maybe i said it on the show but i'll repeat it here remember how different it was when random house didn't own penguin oh wait no you don't <laughs>
2: No, I mean, yeah. you know... Yeah, it's, it, it, it doesn't feel different.
1: For the people at Penguin and the people at Random House, mm-hmm. I'm sure it feels a lot different. Maybe on the author-agent supply side, right, rather than the buy side, you know, the, the reading industry, the readers, dummies like us are on the buy side, but on the sell side, I'm sure it's different in a lot of different ways. But it does feel a little bit about arguing about the arrangement of the deck chairs on a ship that looks like the Titanic when the iceberg <laughs> is Amazon. right. To worry about whether or not Simon Schuster is owned by HarperCollins or PRH, because the 900-pound gorilla is not affected. If anything, the 900-pound gorilla is maybe has a raised eyebrow at PRH even a little bit more today. Is that better for reading in books and in the industry in the buy side or excuse me the um, the sell side? I don't know. I think that's the other mm-hmm. piece of the scales here. Yes, there's consolidation. A. What does that actually mean? And B, does that consolidation have uh, attendant compensations in other parts of the industry? I don't know. PRH, to this point, as we've said many, many times, does not seem interested, at least in ways we understand in flexing its muscle with Amazon. It also could be that the 900-pound gorilla is great if you are also in the business of like stealing people's bananas, right? If they're on the same side selling books, we don't hear a lot of squawking from the PRH side about Amazon. It may not be that they don't want to squawk. It could be. Turns out in a pandemic, it was super nice to have. It's made much easier to get the right book to the right place at the right time from Amazon than in other situations. There are things that are very bad about Amazon. I would like many things they do to change, but I'm just not sure that the world is that much worse for a big retailer than it was. I, I just don't know. Uh, I, I And I haven't seen a compelling argument. There's a lot of hand wringing and there's certainly anti-patterns and ways this could go wrong but there's basically two companies i can buy an operating system from for my computer i'm all right you know you know it's yeah, one I, I, i'm not sure it's it's hard to know it's hard to know i
2: think it's just one of those really tough situations where two things that are in tension with each other are true at the same time mm. and one of those things is that folks inside publishing can see the same problems with amazon that you know other consumers see and folks inside publishing care about independent bookstores as well and want to support that and have personal yeah. moral ethical objections to amazon and they I, it's an and not a but Like, right. and they see the utility that amazon has to the industry and even though those things are both true and they both hold weight at some point somebody who makes decisions there has to make a decision about them yes and so Do far about it yeah and so yeah. far the decision that they seem to be making implies that what they get from working with amazon outweighs what they would get from going against amazon and i don't know if that's true but I believe that that is where they've landed on their assumption about it and that there is data behind that in some yeah. capacity. I don't like it. Um, but I think if we were going to see PRH make a move against Amazon or like really try to have their own robust online retail to compete with it, mm-hmm. we would have seen that at some point. We have not seen that in the last several years since the merger. Like if you go to buy a book at PRH.com, it, it will give you somewhere between five and 10 retail options to mm-hmm. choose from to be directed away from prh.com you can make purchases there but they're not trying to get you to it's like you could buy this here or you could click to amazon barnes and noble Indiebound, books a million what bookshop.org mm-hmm. whatever they're they're all listed there and Part like part of me wishes, you know, well, now that they have Simon and Schuster, they're going to be big, even bigger, and they'll have more power and they could really make a move against Amazon. But I just don't think it's likely like the bigger it gets, the less likely they are, actually, I think, to go yeah. against Amazon, because the more they rely on them, like now we yeah. have to sell 50% of the books in the industry and make mm-hmm. sure that they get to places and who is going to help us do that. It's a real like golden handcuffs situation. Yeah,
1: it's like a golden handcuffs and you have a slightly nicer jail cell. And I I don't – it's hard to know what the situation – because it feels like – you know, we've seen in other industries um, when a couple of parties have leverage and they're trying to figure out who has more leverage. We saw it recently with Epic Games and Fortnite and Apple and the 30% cut. I'm not sure if anyone's followed that over there. But a couple of them swung the sticks they carry on their shoulder. Like they sit – most of those sticks just sit around, Mm -hmm. right? And every now and again, you get to see them swing. At this point – for does is PRH have a big enough stick on its shoulder where Amazon says jump, and PRH can say, you know what, I'm going to stay seated. I don't know. We don't. This is one thing we don't know. I don't think we're at the point where PRH can tell Amazon to jump. Amazon's like Amazon, go Amazon. But if the goal is where PRH can at least countermand some of the stuff that makes, you know, a charitably. Um, Amazon reaping the rewards of their success and their business prowess and size, uncharitably be their cutthroat, vaguely, maybe actually monopolistic and antitrust kind of procedures. Putting the legal thing aside, at some point, competitors, cohorts, people in the same space compete outside of the law, right? They're not actually concerned about what the antitrust is like, what can we actually do and what can we actually get? The golden handcuffs for PRH might also be the distributed retail they have in the form of bookstores and Barnes and Nobles and bookshops and other places. Like, yeah, is Amazon I, the golden, golden Handcuffs for launching their own store? Is it everyone else? Who would be more mad if PRH launched their own store tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Indie bookstores or Amazon?
2: When I think it's also a situation where it's just true that PRH and now PRH, Simon Schuster, whatever they're going to be called, needs Amazon a lot more than Amazon needs PRH. And
1: <sighs> yeah, maybe. As a bookstore, That's... if as a bookstore, if all PRH Simon and Suster titles deliver disappeared tomorrow from Amazon, is it a credible bookstore? I wonder No,
2: but I think it doesn't matter to Amazon that much at this point. Like I I think as a segment of their sales, mm-hmm. books have been increasingly de-emphasized yeah. and that's evident in the fact that books are not like a primary loss leader mm-hmm. at amazon anymore as we've seen by tracking weird discrepancies weird, in pricing weird <laughs>
1: pricing patterns
2: yeah yeah that i'm sure amazon doesn't want to lose you know all of their book sales but on the balance sheet if they did never sell a book again amazon mm-hmm. continues to exist
1: yeah if their best alternative to no agreement is like or this business goes to zero. That's very difficult to negotiate with some right. terms. On the other hand, they stop caring that much. Maybe they don't want to try to squeeze all the blood from the stone because this blood doesn't matter. Got plenty of blood. Boy, that went weird. Uh, really quick. Um, so, yeah, I, I welcome feedback. We especially would like links if you see particularly mm-hmm. sophisticated analyses for or against or secondary effects. Um, it's the kind of thing where there's so little data available and people don't talk. You know, there's no leakers in the White House. We got no Mag- Maggie Haberman of the publishing industry, um, which, whatever, it is what it is. This piece in um, Publishers go by John Mayer, that must be a tough name. It's M A H yeah. E R. It's kind of like Kevin Cosner. Uh, it, we link to it there. There's a few things. I think it's sort of normal. Like, does Author Guild ever like anything? They don't <laughs> That's ever like a great like question. It. They don't ever seem to like anything. Which maybe maybe it's been a tough 100-year run for the Authors Guild. I don't know. Um, but the next time the author girls see a development happen, like, yeah, this is awesome, it will be the first that I can think of. Um, <laughs> where else do you want to? Let's do a sponsor. That was, a, that was segment A. Mm-hmm. Feedback, podcast at com. Time for a sponsor.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary and Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer, Mary Anise Hegler. The Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a Black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled *Troubled Waters*. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of *Troubled Waters*, for sponsoring this episode. That he will have seven great loves in his life, and then he meets Irena in '95, and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny, they fall in love.
1: Uh, well, let's do news and then we can do sort of, um, top level best books of the year parachute in for some of these yeah, big lists. Yeah, we have
2: our own, uh, look at 2021 for Book Riot also.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, go, talk about going off a whimper, not a bang. Uh, Reed is retiring BEA and BookCon, which is a long time coming, I feel like. And mm-hmm. they did all the things they could do, I think, to try to figure out, um how to how to reawaken the corpse of Frankenstein here. But COVID, like it is for so many businesses, unfortunately, was for some business it was it's a it's a meteor, right? It's a one off. And for some business I think it's an acceleration of trends that were coming. And I think that they're not saying we're gonna just not do 2021, but boy golly, we're gonna be back in twenty twenty two tells me that this is not so much idiosyncratic as Fast forwarding into the future.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I agree. Book book Expo was in need of major overhauls, if not a complete, like, burn it down and start over before COVID, um, Mm -hmm. as evidenced by several years in which they were like, welcome to the new Book Expo. And, like, the running joke was like, that's exactly the same as all the other Book Mm -hmm. Expos you've been to. Um, I think some of this probably is purely logistical also, Mm. that, you know, you've got a book, like, it's been held at the Javits Center in New York for the last several years and they had booked it I think for five years straight I don't remember which year was going to be the last of the five but getting out of those kinds of leases for major events requires all kinds of shenanigans and insurance Mm -hmm. things and they were probably going to have to decide like pretty soon now if they were going to try to hold it in 2022 and given the like extreme shruggy man nature of vaccine distribution timelines and then beyond that when people will feel comfortable going back to big crowded events Mm -hmm. and conventions I totally get what those meetings must have been like that resulted in the conclusion of like there's no way that we can plan this for 2022 and if you can't plan for a couple years out and be in motion why not also you know take a beat and reconfigure when reconfiguring has already been called for and you know this piece in shelf awareness notes that read pop is engaging in conversations with publishers booksellers and other partners and that those feedback and ideas they get from those people is going to help read pop figure out how to best rebuild the events in the future Mm -hmm. so i think we'll see some virtual stuff between now and whenever the the new thing happens um but there will be a new thing will they call it book expo (laughs) 2.0 Who knows?
1: Yeah, um, it's really interesting to see. You know, it's it's funny. I was thinking about this in a different context the other day. Like, inertia works both ways, right? Mm-hmm. Things in motion tend to stay in motion, but also things that aren't in motion tend not to start just moving, right? And so, it's it's less likely now. I feel like there's a 2024 book con than even with the decelerating speed that was coming out of it. Weirdly, like we've we've changed the bit to. Um, the default position is not to do it rather than the wheels are turning. We're always thinking about next year. We have a contract, we have staff that that's their job, and blah blah blah. It's much harder to to, to, to do 2024's book, BEA, than it is if you haven't done it for the last two years. So, I don't know. You and I have for I mean, almost since the beginning of the show, like one of our thoroughgoing, like actual topics rather than bits is like what to do with BEA. Mm-hmm. And as much as we've said, boy, we should do something else, with BEA. I don't think we've ever had the presumptive hubris to say we know what to do, right? I mean, everyone should understand that we're not like, they're doing it wrong. It yeah, was more like, yeah, I don't know what to do, but is yeah. it, it can't be this.
2: I think it, the real struggle there, as I understand it and as I've experienced it, is that. It feels nice for everybody in the industry to get together for a couple of days. Like publicists like meeting the media people, the sales folks inside publishers like a chance to see booksellers and librarians, you know, everybody likes the chance to like schmooze it's author service. Like it's nice if your author gets featured at one of the lunches, you know, and Mm. like They get to feel special. There's all sorts of like feel-good stuff that happens and relationship-building kinds of things that happen at Book Expo. But the origin of BEA was originally as the American Booksellers Association association Conference. It's just the end of 2020, and words are hard. Um, And that was where booksellers would meet with the publishers, and they would literally be placing orders for what they were going to sell in their stores. And that's a hard like sort of starting place to be anchored to when you then move into a much more fluid kind of buying Mm -hmm. environment where orders can be placed at any time. You can place your order by email. You could email your rep. You don't even have to have meetings face-to-face with your sales reps because the internet makes it possible to do that. And over time, I know publishers were like, we're not writing orders at these anymore. Like We're spending all this money on these booths and all these booksellers are coming and librarians are coming, but we're not actually selling any books during Mm -hmm. this. And if the origin point of it, If the goal was to sell books and write orders and you're not doing that anymore, there has to be a new point. And I think the new point has to pencil out. And it sort of evolved into like, well, now the point is that we all just get together and it's publicity. And publicity is really hard to make pencil out because Mm -hmm. it doesn't result in direct trackable (laughs) sales. Yeah,
1: so, attribution's <laughs> hard enough for book sales. Good luck yeah. with publicity dollars.
2: So I yeah, I re- continue to have no idea about what a convention that gathers publishers and like big players in the industry. That makes a meaningful difference to sales should look like. So maybe they just need to start over and be like, "What's the thing we're trying to achieve? The thing we're trying to achieve is getting people together for a few days. How do we do that and make it fun, or you know, make it productive? We already have that. I
1: mean, I guess that's the thing. We already have that in terms of like we've got all these literary arts and books festivals over the country. Like, there's demand for events around books like this, or at least there will be when you know it's safe to go out and do so. And won't we all enjoy that? But the industry side." You know, I don't really know um, what makes sense anymore. Yeah,
2: it feels to me like just the book industry version of what's happened in so many other industries where like we have this human sense that like going to a meeting in person makes a difference, Mm -hmm. yet business continues to get done while we're all in our houses working over Zoom. And would it be better if we were in person? Like maybe. Would we like it more? Probably. But (laughs) like does the liking it more actually make sense for the bottom line? Or it makes sense enough to hold a giant event and for publishers to spend tens of thousands of dollars on a booth to be there. Like, that's the real question is if it's not going to result in writing orders, is it worth it for the knock-on effects and like the feelings of having been there for the sense that you have built a relationship more, mm-hmm. even if those same meetings could have happened over Zoom.
1: Yeah.
2: And and I do think that, like an inside industry event is a different kind of demand than literary arts festivals. Like publicists want to talk to booksellers. Editors like to meet people who, you know, run other media things and like ha- feel like they have a, sh- a chance to schmooze and get their books covered. And maybe we need that kind of event. Maybe people just think it feels nice. I, I don't know. I can't imagine what a different version that would be better would look like. But I, I'm i confident we're going to see some attempts at something different.
1: If networking is the core, which I think is the thing that's hardest to replicate in any other situation. like you'd, we, We're old enough now that some of the first BAs we went to, we would see publisher sitting down with a bookseller and like this giant paper catalog and like Mm -hmm. go through them right and like mark stuff down on a piece of paper about how many copies of whatever they were going to buy um that doesn't need to happen that way anymore. the galley distribution situation um Rebecca future girl Rebecca should is very happy (laughs) about what 2020 (laughs) has meant for print galleys um tough beat for print galleys in 2020 um but that networking piece of being getting to talk to other people connect and commingle and you know that kind of stuff i think that is still the hardest thing to do even over zoom right that incidental it's different to talk to someone in person this just all the way is to it now does that need to happen in javits with these giant booze where people are hauling in these things and getting their galleys and whatever like if you stripped it down to like the naked spinning core of bea which is just a couple, bunch of people in the book industry who want to talk to each other it feels to me like your overhead could come l- way down, like literally the ceilings at Javits are like 16,000 stories tall. Like literally your overhead is way too high at Javits.
2: Yeah, I once um, got a sunburn sitting in the press lounge. Because... It's
1: like a greenhouse in there. <laughs> Even yeah. Louise Glick could grow tomatoes in that place. Oh,
0: that's, <laughs> oh, that is oh, what, that's a let's good callback.
1: <laughs> anyway, so that's BE book on. I have to say, I I would go, I would be more ex- I like going to BEA, even though now I'm six hours away and I've got kids and sold things. I always liked being at BEA. We like being there together with our mm-hmm. friends and that we work with and people we know. But it was like there was an awful lot of um, Tootsie Roll pop to get to the chocolate center of that, if that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and maybe maybe just sell the Tootsie Roll if you can. I don't know what that might look like. Uh, okay. Best books of 2020, question to you. Mm-hmm. After looking at some of these, are there consensi? That's uh, clearly the plural of consensus.
2: Obviously, why would you need <laughs> a plural of
1: consensus? Anyway, consensus, um, s- s- consensus, consensi- consensium. <laughs> um, the books of the year emerging mm. from any of these lists.
2: I am seeing Blacktop Wasteland by S. A. Cosby on a that's lot of a lists. That's a late comer,
1: I think. That that's that's charging up. You know, it's mm-hmm. breaking late
2: cast by Isabel Wilkerson is on a lot of them. Yeah, Vanishing Half. I've seen, yeah, Vanishing Half, Mexican Gothic's on a lot of lists. Your fave for the year, Deacon King Kong. Oh, which by the way, I
1: don't know when you're going to get this, it's t- it's uh, four ninety nine on Kindle as a deal oh, today. It may last. I have two it already. Hours. Oh, good! You good I was. I should have DM'd you. I meant to do that.
2: <laughs> oh, things, I have it you in- know how these things. Are- yeah. Oh, I got it in hardcover. I We're wasn't good. talking
1: to you. I was talking about a listener oh, out there who might be listening to this on Monday. Go check the Deacon King Kong. You. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm seeing those in a lot of places. Memorial by Brian Washington seems to be mm-hmm. coming up a lot. Um, let's see who else. Deacon King Kong's on this other list. Oh, the Ayad Akhtar novel, Homeland Elegies. I'm seeing that pop up.
1: I think though, that, that in the Blacktop Wastelands are kind of to use the betting lingo. The Sharps picks are there mm-hmm. a couple of those guys. The Publix picks are Cast, um, yeah. Vanishing Half, Obama's book, which is just fine. It's good. It's fine. It's, 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 it's too long. Are you done?
2: No. Yeah, I'm going to be reading that book forever. <laughs>
1: Turns out I know what happens. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't end well. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah, just interesting to see. The Publishers Weekly list remains to me one of my favorite lists. That was yeah. the first one we talked about. I think a lot of these were getting regression to the mean, meaning kind of consensus picks, which is fine. I like consensus mm-hmm. picks. Then you can kind of keep track. But that Publishers Weekly was first out of the gate and of the big list that we follow, at least, had a little more personality, I think. Than yeah, a lot
2: of and you know, even this Amazon Top 20 of the year, there's a lot more genre variety like or that this is a trend that i am so pro on um over the last like over our careers in books these best books of the year lists have are no longer like 10 big literary novels yep. and a couple thoughty memoirs and a big nonfiction like it's great to see a suspense book about like a, a getaway driver beyond mm. the top
1: 20 books mexican gothic great example right. like yeah. horror novel by a uh, latina writer yeah I mean, and great. you
2: know like the group is that you know big memoir about group therapy the isabel wilkerson is probably the most predictable to yeah. appear on like a traditional best books of the year list except, and it should except
1: absolutely be there. Except it would have been written by David McCullough, right? No, I'm serious. Like, that's no, no, you're that's right. Different. You're
2: right. Yeah. 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 Um, the James not Cast, bride. not the cast.
1: The author and subject matter that is new, yeah. but like the form yes. and style and like where yes. it fits in.
2: Yeah. Um, Saigon. Nice to see that on yeah. here. That's sort of a, a dark horse of the best of lists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's cool to see more variety in terms of genre and to see like mainstream big lists like this take genre seriously yeah. and recognize like there have always been great books in all the genres um but for a really long time it was you know th- just the new york times talking about like carl nausgaard or whatever his name yeah, is yeah
1: right you know, it's, it's and, friends until the end of time right um here's a question for you <laughs> i need we need a scoreboard for just the podcast my app idea so we could take you know keep track of these things i'm Mm -hmm. not sure i'd come out ahead so maybe that's why we're not keeping (laughs) it will the best-selling book of 2021 be a 2021 release
2: oh you know that is a great question jeff yeah it is
1: thank you very much for validating that question
2: (laughs) i think it will be okay Because we haven't had a 2020 release that was a big runaway book club hit. Yeah,
1: we didn't. I was thinking the same thing. We're ready for one. We've all read Crawdads. They've all read Crawdads. There can't be that much oxygen left.
2: Right. And there were some great novels this year that I think in a normal year would have maybe had the legs to be Mm. a big commercial book club hit. But 2020 just, you know. Not normal, yeah, right. and I think when we get to, I don't know, Q2 of 2021, and there's mm-hmm. hopefully like some vaccination momentum and people going feel- out
1: and we're going to the beach, I'm right? You're going,
2: you're having some things that feel more like normal life or an emergence into at least being out in the world again, and some headspace for being in the world again, and less headspace devoted to COVID things and election things. I think then it opens up room for there to be another big hit yeah. like that, and it's yeah. and whether it's fiction or a big memoir like Educated was like to be the best selling book of the year. You're you basically need to be a runaway book club hit.
1: <laughs> you need to break out of book nerd sphere or never have been a part of it. In the case right. of Crawdads, mm-hmm. um, and then catch fire. You need right. people to talk to other people about. Boy, you need to read this. Boy, wasn't this great and fun um, and interesting or I couldn't put it down in the case of Gone Girl, or I felt so big in the case of mm-hmm. Educated or When Breath Becomes Air, right? Like, yeah. these, aren't, these things are hard to predict but obvious in hindsight or um, not surprising typically in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Like it looks uh, – crawdads. I'm still starting to decide how – I mean, look, it's an outlier, so of course you're surprised. But is it that different than some other books that take fire? Like it is, but it has some of the same things that say Girl on the Train or something Mm -hmm. like that had um, baked into it. I was looking, I guess we haven't put on our schedule yet, our our, our 2021 spring preview, but I've I've got a long list of 37 titles. Already? Yes. Had some fun with the catalogs. Also, it turns out catalogs are great online. And again, it's the one that you don't know that surprises you, right? Because by mm-hmm. definition, you can't know it. Sometimes you have some suspicions. Like, I remember what the the year of the nest. Remember that? With Cynthia? Oh, what's her yeah. name? Uh-huh. And that didn't... It wasn't Crawdads, but that moved. Um, that had a
2: huge publicity budget, you, and, too. And,
1: the, and that one this year, I think, was um, a book we don't love to talk about. But American Dirt had a huge publicity thing, and it moved, though. that That's waning. Mm-hmm. I don't have a great... If I had a few chips to put down on the roulette wheel here... I think I'm taking them back to the cashier and get myself a steak dinner, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't have a great I have things I'm super excited, like really as excited for a slate of books I've been a long time and I don't know why, maybe it's because of twenty twenty one I feel like it's mm-hmm. gonna be different. Mm-hmm. Like Patricia Lockwood's novel is coming out in February. Like, oh god, I mean, how like, weird and fun is that. Is that be? just gonna be I mean the Ishiguro is coming out and I don't wanna step on the but I'm not picking any of those to be like, you know, the thing that people are reading about that I see like my friends from high school reading on my on their uh, Facebook feeds. Right, Um, I just don't have it. So anyway, but I but I feel like there's a run. There's a big hit shaped thing out there, and Mm -hmm. I I agree with you completely. I'm glad you said that because I was going to say not quite articulated like that. Of course, the other situation is that it's Crawdads and A Promised Land. Because I think Crawdads might still be the best selling fiction title of the year for adult fiction. Uh, You know, now we're now we're really into rarefied air. Um, But uh, anyway. Yeah, I don't know. Like, go take out the list. I'm not sure. We we didn't put the Goodreads Choice Awards in on here. That is so fragmented now. I'm not even sure to make make, what Mm -hmm. to make of it. Um, It is a popularity contest. I think you will be surprised that there are almost no surprises. I guess this Matt Haig book, The Midnight Library, I've seen a bunch of people read about. I know nothing about it, and I remain completely uninterested in it. I I don't know why. Just not. But that one won for fiction but mm. they break things in historical fiction like it's not well, a true test i don't it's think a it's a truth true test.
2: universally acknowledged though that if you write a book that has a library or bookstore in the title you and know. then you are in the Goodreads competition. You're going to at least go pretty far.
1: <laughs> I would like to back test that data. I think there's way more of those that do nothing. I think there's a lot of them, is what it is. I think there's a lot of them. And so I know. I just think
2: if was... you make it into the competition, oh, like,
1: oh, if you manage to make the first cut, right, yeah, so yeah, then
2: it's like, oh, it's a book about libraries. Mm-hmm. We have to vote for it. Like, I mean, that's just. Yeah. I have a whole side rant in me about books about books and how they are. An, an easy ploy, but we can save that for another day.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you mean, Someday you mean, when we need... You mean Panderings Used in Rare Books? Yeah, we should write a that... book called Panderings Used in Rare Books. <laughs> I have a side rant. Sorry. <laughs> Two minutes. So I was watching The West Wing the other night because you and Amanda got me started. But, oh, good. And Michelle and I were blowing through the Christmas episodes. Mm hmm. And I think it's in the first season that Jed Bartlett goes to a rare bookstore to buy gifts, which is like it the hipster hipstery professor or president thing to do. Yep. Fine, whatever, do the thing. The name of the bookstore is rare books. <laughs> Sorkin, my guy. What is that? <laughs> you couldn't Google <laughs> You couldn't name it a serrated crescendo? Proper names used in rare books. You could name it whatever. There's no rare bookstore in the... We can go back to Prospero in The Tempest. (laughs) Wherever Prospero was getting his wares was not called rare books. I don't understand that. It really made me mad. (laughs)
2: I wonder if it was like they filmed at some location that was called, you know, like O'Neill's Rare Books, but they had to just like not put the O'Neill
1: yeah, on I get the that. sign. Call it McGilligan's. <laughs> I don't know. Such, we- such a weird thing to care about, but also a weird thing to do. For
2: as detail obsessed yes. as Sorkin could be about other things, it is funny. It's
1: called Rare Books?
2: You know, I'll have to go back and find it on billions cuz there's a whole subplot on billions where like th- the bad guy gets access to the the guy who thinks he's a good guy's collection right. of not of Winston Churchill like rare Winston Churchills and then he knows that this guy is tr- going to try to buy all the remaining ones so he buys them up from mm-hmm. all over the place and it's a classic like guy got walks into an old bookstore and then there's like a 75 year old man in baggy khaki pants yeah. and a cardigan sweater telling him how much he can get his churchills for there's
1: this weird
2: also called rare books there's
1: there this weird non book person like <laughs> mental model of used bookstore books. <laughs>
2: Right, like can you be a rare bookseller in a film if you're not an old man who like shuffles out from a stock room covered in dust?
1: Yeah, like you if you don't wear corduroy, like they can't see you in a rare books room. Right. It's like camouflage if you're wearing anything but corduroy. You could walk in there let... wearing a black turtleneck and a beret, but they wouldn't see you if you don't have elbow patches and like you need to right. shave and there's you still some to... food on your shirt.
2: You have to let your eyes relax like those magic eye things, and then the the old man emerges out of the shelves. (laughs) The corduroy just blends in with all the deckled edges.
1: (laughs) It's basically many little spines. (laughs) Corduroy
2: Uh, pants that are printed with book spines.
1: Do people wear corduroy anymore? I had a real corduroy phase. I know you're going to be surprised while I was a grad student. (laughs) (laughs) in the shock of all shocks. i I do
2: think people wear corduroy.
1: Wide whale. They're all narrow whale. They're all, they're do none. people
2: wear pants anymore is the real Couldn't question. I tell
1: you. Outside of my expertise at this moment.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You. It is the end of the year. It
1: really is. It really is. Let's do one last sponsor because I'm sure they'll appreciate that placement <laughs> that we uh, just gave them right there.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet, we dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Seller and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is a perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibe so if you you know it's graduation season you want to revel in that but like make it scary you know what i mean pick up the dare by natasha preston and thanks again to underline for sponsoring this episode
1: Okay, kind of uh, hmm, grab bag, other news items. Mm -hmm. Where do you want to go?
2: Well, I want to make sure we talk about Book Riot's Read Harder Challenge for 2021 for the mm, seventh year running. Something like that. Yeah, it is the seventh year running. We're doing the Read Harder Challenge, which is, if you're new around here, welcome. Uh, 24 tasks, so an average of two per month over the course of the year that are designed to help you expand your reading horizons. Um Really great list. And it's fun. The longer we do this, the harder it is to think
1: <laughs> to of It's read of harder, these harder task. Yeah, the task itself <laughs> is the hardest thing to
2: do. Because we've done the general, like, read a science fiction book, read a romance book. So they get more specific, which I also make, think makes it more interesting. Mm. But it kicks off with read a book you've been intimidated to read. Read a nonfiction book about anti-racism. Read a non-European novel in translation. There's a whole bunch. Read an LGBTQ plus history book. Read a novel that's in genre by an indigenous first nations or native american author um read a fanfic read a fat positive romance read a romance by a trans or non-binary author read a middle grade mystery so like as you can see this is going to take you all over the map in terms of category genre intended audience subject matter and that is the point expose yourself to A bunch of different authors and genres and stories that maybe you would have sought out on your own over time, or that maybe you wouldn't have bumped into if you weren't trying to, you know, fill every square Mm -hmm. on your bingo card. Um, And there are posts that are published over the last two weeks of the year. Um, So, you know, by the time you're ready to like really start for 2021, you'll have them that give reading recommendations for every one of these categories. And then there's also a read harder group on goodreads that if you're a goodreads person you can participate in and share recommendations as well Um, a really awesome list that our editorial team put together this year with assists from our contributors it's always really fun on read harder um, like brainstorming day in the Mm -hmm. slack just to see what people come up with and how the um, how the tasks sort of morph as everybody gets in there together to help shape them so you can uh, find it um, by going to bookriot.com read harder or we'll have a link specifically to um, the challenge list in the show notes, um, but a really great list going into uh, 2021. And as a bonus, if you complete the Read Harder Challenge and you send in your completed uh, form, because there's a, a PDF that you can complete at the end of next year, you can get 30% off of a purchase at out of print clothing. Hmm. So, yeah, very cool a little extra reward.
1: If you could assign the bookish internet one reading task for the year, Rebecca. It doesn't have to be a read harder one. It could be a read easier, but you get to direct it. And you can do this for for laughs or for something as prosaic as aggregate good. Um, What would you pick?
2: I I think I would do something along the lines of, like, read a book that you're interested in if no one else ever knows that you've read it. You know, like... Where it's not going to be about putting it on your Instagram. It's not going to be, there's no external proof or validation that you have read this book.
1: Hmm. I like that. Thank
2: you. I don't think it comes nicely into like a quick phrase that we could package onto a Read Harder challenge.
1: (laughs) Well, you could do it other way. Something you want to read, but you don't want to tell anybody else about it. Or you could do it that way.
2: You could do it that way. I think that's a different kind of pick, maybe. Like, really? This, yeah, because like you want to read, but you don't want to tell anybody else about it. Is like you want to keep it secret. This is like you're gonna you read a book that you're gonna read, even if you don't get credit for it from the world. You know, like there's so uh. much of our reading lives. Uh, so much of our lives in general is like on the internet mm-hmm. or performative in some way, or like that Portlandia sketch that just devolves into the them going, "Did you read? Did you read? Did you read? Did you <laughs> did you read?" So like, if no one was gonna know. What would you read? Like, what are you hmm. just interested in? That I am is the not... wrong
1: recipient for that because I'm like, what are people doing if not that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. Like, that's the older, and I think this is a product of yeah. us like aging as well. Like, the older that you get, the less you care about. I'm read I think a book
1: about tall ships. Who cares? Right?
2: Yeah. Who else reads books about submarines, Jeff? Really? <laughs> like, you know th- that. um There's a lot of like, I think people feel a lot of pressure of like, I should read, I want to read romances, but but I should read serious nonfiction or whatever. And I think like in all years, but especially after the year that we've had, like, read the thing that you are drawn to and just assume like that no one is paying attention. Maybe that's the prompt is like, what are you reading if really no one is paying attention to the books you post on your Instagram?
1: That's way too healthy. I'm not doing that. That's not my... I want to do... No, you're totally to, doing that. No, no, I do that. That's not my pick for what I want other people to read, though. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm doing something else. I want people <laughs> to read a history of X and N things. I, okay. in, a, in a subject you're interested in, we talked a week or two ago about how there's a whole category, and it's actually most books that we don't get assigned in school, so mm-hmm. you don't know... I think a lot of people that don't weren't drawn to books that they were offered in whatever situation don't ever realize that like there's a whole world that's meant out there just to kind of be interesting, right? You don't have to learn anything. It's not necessarily good for you. It's just sort of interesting. I think we we're talking about Trevor Noah born a crime, the recommendation. So it's like, I wish people got that earlier. And so I think there's categories of books that people think, well, it's not Donna Tart or it's not a classic. It's not poetry. It's not personal development. It's also not awesome for Instagram or for my book club, but like, one of the amazing things about books that still remains amazing is how many different kinds there are about every kind of subject. No other genre can do, no, no other medium can do, the video can't do it, even podcasts can't do it, where it's just someone with a word processor and a crazy dream can write <laughs> uh, A History of the Pencil and S- 75 Anecdotes, which is a real book that I DM'd <laughs> you this week.
2: Yeah, I, I can confirm it is real.
1: But there's like that for anything you care about. And the the access to history you get and also just the snackability of it and there's low stakes but you've really learned something. Ooh I wish snackability. People, I wish people had more of a reading experience like that. Th- that their expectation wasn't so loaded. And they didn't it wasn't all like I want to read just to for plot, which is fine. That's a fine way of doing it. But you always want that and that you can scratch a little bit of the reading should be good for me. I want reading to do something for me that movies can't. And Mm. I think this is that
2: I totally love this as well. I think this is a great one because it's like it's a reparative reading experience with nonfiction
1: reparative reading experience. That's what I like to hear.
2: Mm-hmm. And people have a lot of like book stuff around yeah. nonfiction, especially around the notion that it's all dry and boring or that like it's the I don't know, the brand of your reading diet yeah, right, Totally,
1: <laughs> and, yep.
2: and that it's not fun. And there are so many fun ways to do nonfiction and there are great authors doing them. And you're absolutely right that you can find a nonfiction book that is interesting and fun about basically whatever you're interested yes. in even if what you're interested in is the history of pencils which there's at least one reader for that book and he's on this podcast
1: it's right now they moved one unit
2: <laughs> i think that's a great that's a great task too so many people have stuff Books are about. exciting yeah i think maybe find a fun accessible entry point to poetry is another one that I would give people because it's so like poetry does a thing like what music does that sort of bypasses Mm. your analytical mind and you have to feel the matrix
1: plug goes right in somehow yeah Yeah.
2: you have to feel the thing first and I definitely needed reparative poetry experiences after school you know after Mm. especially after like high the high school anthology of great American poems that's like what's going on with the wheelbarrow you know
1: (laughs) so much depends on that
2: a parent, well, yeah. a lot of I, it took me like a, a couple decades to, to recover from it. Um, I would like to have. Talk people... about an
1: impenetrable wall. You walk into a bookstore, you know, back in the late 70s oh. when you could do that, and you go to the poetry section, have fun as a, as a right. civilian. <laughs> it is tough. That's a tough one.
2: It is tough. Just browsing a poetry section for yourself, like, yeah. Oh, look, another poem. Or maybe, maybe this is the bigger, read harder challenge. Like the bigger task that sort of connects the two things we're talking about is like prescribe yourself a reparative reading experience like mm. figure out like some I don't trauma is way too strong of a word but like what's a reading like what kind of reading baggage do you have oh
1: I see I gotcha yeah and you know like, there's this one day with Dickens and Tale in Two Cities and I had to read it out loud in class and play Charles Darnay when I was 15 <laughs> that may be specific I don't know I'm just I'm throwing it out there uh-huh
2: just a general. And, just a so general now you one. need to read Tale of Two Cities and have a good experience?
1: My soul just broke out in hives when you said that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like that. One too. With poetry, you know, with the interesting about poetry, it's so underread that you could even set up a heuristic like, okay, go pull up the uh, National Book Award for poetry, right? Or mm-hmm. the Pulitzer Prize, and go to random.org and press in, you know, 1 to 40 and just read the Pulitzer Prize winning poetry <laughs> collection from whatever number you get. I bet you'll have an interesting experience mm-hmm. because their poetry is great. But the, uh, speaking of the uh, intellectual aesthetic inertia to get into a poetry space, because most poetry, again, it's about something, and there's, it doesn't do the work that prose can do for it to help you out. It's like that, that's it. it goes right into your brainstem, but also mm-hmm. goes right into your brainstem, you know, is uh, the anti-pattern there. Oh, let's call that a show. We can keep some of this other stuff. Is there anything else we need to say now? About these other sundry things. In a normal week, we'd have other things to talk about, but we had AAA news and then diversions yeah. of our own device.
2: I just want to note that we did get news earlier this week that Bob Woodward is going to write yep. with, um, oh, who is the co? Robert Costa, um, both of the Washington Post. They are going to write the book on the final days of the Trump presidency. And the first phase of the Biden presidency, and that's all we know. We mm-hmm. don't know like how long that first phase of the Biden presidency will be that they're writing about. We don't know what a predicted title or publication date is. But I can't remember if I said it to you or if I said it on the podcast. This is the book that I want, like the Woodward inside look at what you don't Trump. Want, you has want been this, doing. not Haberman. I think I'm going. I want Haberman, both. I, I want both. Like well, okay, when okay, this, okay. yeah, when I, I'm, I refuse to choose. <laughs> <laughs> When this broke, Amanda texted me at like seven thirty in the morning. I was like, Bob Woodward's going to write the last days of Trump book, and I think my reply was almost exactly like, "Oh, between this and Maggie Haberman, like mm-hmm. I'm getting everything I want." Um. There'll be different takes, and that will be fascinating. And we do know that, like, Donald Trump likes to just call Bob Woodward on the phone and talk to him. And Woodward has gotten really interesting He's going to have stuff. nothing
1: better to do here in about 30 days. Yeah,
2: like, uh, have they been having conversations since November 3rd? Because I really want to know about that. So, has been
1: governing, I'll tell you that much. Right. Um,
2: so I will be um, waiting with relatively bated breath for what this Bob Woodward book gonna is going to be.
1: It's going to be a while, probably, but Woodward can—I'm sure there's going to be a whole— um, Woodward Industrial Complex to get this book moving in the right direction. All right. What are people waiting for? I guess we have another. Oh, so our next show is going to be Monday, December 21st? Yes. The 28th. And then we said we are going to do our favorite books of the year, which we will do, which is coming a little mm-hmm. bit later. Yeah. I, I think I'm we're idiot, off on the 28th. Basically. Are we off on the 28th?
2: Yeah, we have a show on the 21st and a show on January 4th.
1: Okay, so we're off on the 20th. One of these shows will be our favorite non-book things of 2020. And one of them will be our favorite reads of 2020, meaning these are books that didn't necessarily come out in 2020. We just happen to have read them there. Um, A lot of nice feedback about recommendations so far, though no one has actually read the book. But a lot of purchasing happening. Go forth and gift, even it is to unto thyself. Um, Rebecca, we'll talk to you there.
2: Have a good one.